Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today, I'm joined by Nathan Rubin, founder of Millennial Politics, and Sam Bagenstoss, civil rights lawyer and candidate for the Michigan Supreme Court. Thank you both for coming on. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks so much. Sam, I hope you don't mind. Let's go ahead and jump right in. I would love for you to tell us and our listeners a little bit about your background and uh, how you found yourself in this race. Sure. Yeah, I'll say I never thought I would be running it for anything ever. Electing judges, I know, is something that a lot of people think of as a somewhat strange thing, and it certainly creates a a strange kind of political race. Uh, Basically, for the last 25 almost years, I've been a civil rights lawyer uh, and a law professor, graduated from law school almost exactly 25 years ago, clerked for a terrific judge in California, Stephen Reinhardt, and for Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the U.S. Supreme Court. And since then, I've kind of divided my time between practicing civil rights law and teaching um, with a stint in the Obama Justice Department at the beginning of the Obama administration. I found myself doing this because we increasingly understand the importance of courts uh, as the last resort for our rights, the last line of defense. You know, the last year or so has really brought that home, although it's always been true. And I think people are recognizing the importance of state courts and state Supreme Courts. I mean, if you look at what's happening in North Carolina and Pennsylvania, it's really the state Supreme Courts that have been the place where fundamental questions about democracy and about our rights have gone. And, you know, Michigan's Supreme Court is in a place where it could change very substantially this year. And I wanted to be a part of that. So you mentioned you in the past have worked for folks like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. While at the Justice Department, you worked closely with Eric Holder and I believe Tom Perez as well. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to work with these people and and help advance a an agenda that that I guess would be in line with the Obama administration. Sure, sure. I mean, you know, so I've I've been really privileged to have some terrific bosses in my life and 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 real role models about standing up for what's right, uh, following the law, you know, being really highly professional as lawyers, but also understanding that that law is not something that's abstract. It's not a bunch of words on paper. It really matters for people's lives. I actually had been a career attorney in the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department when I was in my 20s back in the mid-1990s. My boss was Deval Patrick, who was the then the head of the Civil Rights Division and, and just a, a, a terrific person um, who cares a lot about civil rights and was really aggressive in enforcing civil rights. The Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department, to me, is sort of the crown jewel of the American government because it really stands for our most fundamental freedoms and taking a position on the most basic issues in America, you know, the issues of inequality. Um, And and it's really been important at, at crucial points in history. And I was really proud to start my career there. When I got back to the Justice Department as a political appointee under Eric Holder and Barack Obama, in 2009, it was a pretty sad time for the Civil Rights Division. You know, many people recall the Bush administration had worked really hard to undermine the historic role of the division and had also created an atmosphere in the division that meant that the most experienced, uh, you know, lawyers had left in many occasions. And so it was a really difficult time for the division. We really had to go in and rebuild it so that it could be an effective force in enforcing civil rights. 
but also had to recognize that the civil rights problems of 2009 were not the same as the civil rights problems when I had worked there in the 1990s. I mean, some were the same. You know, there have been continuing attacks on voting rights in this country, and we obviously had to defend against those, although they changed in some ways. But, you know, some of them were very different. And so, for example, when I was there, uh, one of the central areas I focused on was disability rights, the rights of Americans with disabilities. And, and you know, we really stepped up enforcement uh, of the law to guarantee that people with disabilities could live in their own homes and communities rather than nursing homes. We stepped up our enforcement of digital accessibility because the Internet had just blown up in the time since since the 1990s. And, and you know, if people with disabilities can't access the Internet, they're really being shut out of you know, so many opportunities for education, for work, for civic participation. You know, obviously LGBT issues had become a very significant focus. And I'm really proud of the work I, I did both in the Obama administration and afterwards on LGBT issues to, to advance LGBT rights um, across a variety of fronts. A, a lot of it was take a management task of taking this organization that had historically been so important to the civil rights movement as kind of an ally within the government of the civil rights movement, but had fallen on hard times and, and bringing it back to its former greatness. But a lot of it also was updating and understanding that the world was different. And I, I you know, I just couldn't have been more proud. I can't be more proud to, to be, to, to have served with, with Eric Holder, who civil rights are really at his core. And, you know, when, when we had these fights within the government for we want to do this aggressive stuff on civil rights. Eric Holder always had our back because he really cared about this. And I, I think one of the things, if you spend enough time in Washington, and I've sort of been in and out of Washington in my career, if you spend enough time in Washington, you know, you, you see a lot of people who are kind of careerists, right? They're, they're people who are trying to please everybody so that they can get the next job. And, you know, Eric Holder is not at all like that. I mean, that was, you know, that was something that I was really happy to have been a part of. You mentioned that the courts can serve as our last savior when the executive and legislative branches fail. But under Donald Trump, we have seen some terrifyingly unqualified and extreme far-right nominees confirmed by the Republican majority Senate to serve lifetime positions on the judiciary. Then, of course, there's Neil Gorsuch, who was seated illegitimately after Republicans blocked Barack Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland. This begs the question, what do we do when we can't rely on the courts, when the people on the bench make the wrong decisions and end up rolling back civil rights? Right. And obviously, as a candidate for a judicial office, I can't really comment on other appointments or those processes. So, you know, but I, I will, I will answer the core of the, of the question, right? Which is, you know, I, I do say, um, because it's true, we've, we've been seeing it recently, courts really are the last line of defense for our rights. Um, you know, we've seen it in the Trump era in case my wife is litigating actually a case that that's trying to protect a large group of Iraqi immigrants from a mass deportation that the Trump administration has been trying to effectuate over the last several months. Cases like that, cases challenging President Trump's travel ban. Courts are really important for that. But if all we have is courts, our rights won't be protected. I mean, you know, I, I think we have to understand that we can't have complacency about our rights. We can't have complacency about the fundamental principles of equal treatment, um, of equal participation in society, of due process. Those are things that have to be a part of our politics 
as well as a part of our litigation in court. I think one of the things Democrats haven't done well is Democrats haven't made courts a priority in their politics in the way that Republicans have. And I think, you know, that's true at the federal level, right, where you see Donald Trump getting into office and instantly filling up the courts with people who are his kind of people. But and, and whereas, you know, the, in the Obama administration, that was much slower. And of course, they faced obstruction. But there were also a lot of decisions made by the Democrats about what to prioritize that didn't include courts. But you also see that at the state level. I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to jump into this race um, was because I've lived in Michigan for a while now and have seen every now and then we have strong candidates for the Supreme Court. But often what I've seen is the Democratic Party sort of deciding the race isn't winnable preemptively and so deciding not to run a significant race. And, you know, courts are important. The Michigan Supreme Court is the most important court for people in Michigan um, in terms of their rights as workers, in terms of their rights as consumers, their rights to a clean environment. If you care about issues like gerrymandering, guns in schools, any of these things, these are issues that are going to come to the Michigan Supreme Court. Both in Michigan and around the country, Democrats haven't done a great job on the state level of saying these are issues that matter to us. And so we're going to field strong candidates and run real races for these positions. So the Michigan Supreme Court has a reputation for being pretty conservative. And generally, conservative courts tend to be pretty bad for civil rights, at least from our perspective. What would the impact of your election be on the ideological composition of the court? Yeah. And so one of the things that I, I can't do as a judicial candidate is I can't promise anything. I mean, it's actually really interesting. It's a very strange kind of uh, a campaign to run because there are canons of judicial ethics that specifically forbid judicial candidates from promising anything. So, you know, most candidates will come in for any office and say, here's the thing that's going wrong and here's what I'm going to do to fix it. And I can't do that. I mean, so what I, I can tell you, because it's it's just fact, it's not a promise about anything I'm going to do. I can tell you that this is a court that has seven justices. Five of those justices were initially appointed by Republican governors, four by Governor Rick Snyder, one by Governor John Engler several years before that. The two most recent Snyder appointees are up for election for the first time this fall. If two Democrats were to win that position, those positions, then we would have we would go from a court that has five Republican appointees against two Democrats who were elected to a court that is four to three in the other direction. So that's significant um, in terms of, you know, in terms of the composition of the court. All I can say about what I would do on the court is that I would decide cases according to the facts and the law, which of course I would do. I mean, I, I, what I'm hoping is that people will see the kind of work I've done in, in my career to get a sense of the kind of person who, who's running for this court. And it's a, a career of standing up for civil rights. So can I dive into that a little bit deeper? You, you mentioned both the fact that governors have appointed justices before and that justices are up for election. So can you just very quickly explain to our listeners what that looks like and, and how that process came to be? Yeah, I mean, so it's the, the process is essentially all of the seats on our Supreme Court stand for election in competitive elections. Uh, but 
if there's a vacancy in the middle of a term, so there are eight-year terms for the justices, if there's a vacancy in the middle of the term, then the governor gets to decide who's going to fill that vacancy. And then the, the person who gets appointed stands for election at the next general election. It is traditionally understood as important uh, to be an incumbent in these races. So, so getting appointed to the court um, is often the best way to stay on the court for a long time. Um, and obviously, I'm taking on an incumbent here. I, I think they're, the people of Michigan really want change, and they want change you know, all up and down the ballot. At least that's the proposition that I'm going to be testing and arguing for um, in this campaign. So what tends to happen is if a judge, if a justice of the Supreme Court was appointed by a governor of the same party as the current governor, whoever the current governor is, and is getting to the point where they want to leave the court or they're about to be, they're about to hit the mandatory retirement age, they'll tend to resign with a little bit of time left in their term for the governor of their same party to appoint someone to have the incumbency advantage. If somebody is nearing the end of their time on the court and it's a governor, the different party than the one who, who nominated them, then they tend to serve to the end and then we have an election for an open seat. So Justice McCormick and Justice Bernstein, who are the two Democrats on the court, were elected in open seat elections, um, whereas the, the other five justices were initially appointed. I should say, you know, I talk about Democrats and Republicans. There's this other oddness of the Michigan elections for judges, uh, the Michigan system of elections for judges, which is it's the parties who nominate candidates to be on the general election ballot. So I am at the moment running to be the Democratic or one of the two Democratic nominees for the Supreme Court. But then when you get to November and the general election ballot, it's a nonpartisan ballot. So the Democrats will nominate two people and we'll go on the general election ballot with just our names, without our party at all. That's another kind of strange hybrid aspect of having a judicial election. Now, not all states are like that. You know, some states, they have highly partisan elections for judges where it's just the Democrat against the Republican. Other states, they're purely nonpartisan. There's no party nomination. Michigan is this very weird hybrid where the parties nominate. And so I'm a Democrat, I'm seeking the Democratic nomination. Once I get that nomination, if you look on the ballot, it's just going to have my name. It's not going to say what my party affiliation is. I'm sure an attack you're going to face from the right, perhaps you've already faced it, is that you're running to be an activist judge, someone concerned with ideology rather than the state constitution. Can you speak to that criticism? Sure. I, you know, I, I can imagine that would be an attack. Look, I, I have been a lawyer for civil rights plaintiffs, for workers, um, you know, for the people of the city of Flint in the water crisis, for, for folks who are kind of outsiders to the system for a long time. And, and I'm actually proud, you know, I'm proud of that. I think that's a qualification that I have. I think too often on courts, what we get are a bunch of people who have represented relatively powerful interests. And that's how they get to the position of, of being judges. That's how they get the political credibility and position where where they can get appointments or elections to being judge. I think, you know, it's it's important to have people who have the experience of representing folks who are more more political outsiders. Um, that because that's what courts are for. I can also say, you know, I have been a civil rights lawyer for almost 25 years during a time when the courts have been quite conservative, from quite conservative to very conservative. Um, and so I know what it's like to 
have a case that you put together um, and that you argue and you have a good argument on the law and, and, you know, you have a good argument based on all of the legal formalities and to have a judge disregard those legal arguments because of their ideology. And, you know, that's like the worst thing as a lawyer. And that's, I understand the role of a judge is not to do that. And I, I, I understand that in some ways because I've experienced it. You know, I've I've been on the other side of it, and I know how bad that is and how inconsistent it is with the judicial role. So I, you know, the experiences that I've had give me a very good sense of how law affects real people, and I think that's an important perspective. But of course, as a judge, my job would be to follow the facts and the law, and that's what I would do. So one case that really speaks to the effects on real people is your representation of Flint residents. Could you tell us about that? Sure. So, you know, I imagine your listeners know at least something about about the Flint water crisis, where basically in Michigan, we have a system where some municipalities that are in financial trouble get put under emergency management. And and this has been a highly controversial law, the emergency manager law. Actually, the voters of the state repealed the old emergency manager law and our current governor and and Republican legislature rushed through a replacement for that, um, a, a new emergency manager law. What emergency managers basically do is they have full power to run a municipality without any of the democratic accountability. You know, they're appointed by the governor. They're not responsible to the citizens of of the city that they're running. The city of Flint, you know, which is a great city, you know, historically one of the centers of auto production in America has fallen on hard times over recent decades because of what's happened to our auto industry. The city of Flint was placed under emergency management. When they were under emergency management, they made a decision, you know, they made a bunch of decisions about how to cut costs. One way they decided to cut costs was to change their source of water. In Michigan, you know, we're surrounded by the Great Lakes. You know, we have Lake Huron on one side, we have Lake Michigan on the other, and the Upper Peninsula, we have Lake Superior up there. You know, so we we have, we're surrounded by the largest source of fresh water you can imagine. Um, and it's clean and it's wonderful. And for decades, the people of the city of Flint drank water that was sourced from Lake Huron. And it worked fine. It came through the Detroit Water Department. In order to cut costs, the folks who were running Flint decided they would change to a different water system, which would eventually also get its water from Lake Huron, but it wasn't up and running yet. So they decided in the interim, they would get water from the Flint River, which, you know, is right there, is a place that has historically been, you know, for the last decades, a dumping ground for a lot of stuff. And so the water was highly corrosive. They didn't put any new corrosion control in the water. You know, what you're supposed to do with water is, you know, put like phosphates in to make sure that it doesn't corrode the pipes. Lots of pipes in America are lead pipes or copper pipes. And, you know, when that stuff leaches out and you drink it, it's very bad for you. So they didn't do that. They, they changed over to the Flint River. They didn't add the corrosion control and lead levels in the water went up because of the way that the corrosiveness worked in the pipes. Uh, there was an explosion of Legionnaire's disease, you know, an outbreak of Legionnaire's disease, which there's arguments about what it's attributable to, but there's strong evidence that it's attributable to the change in the water system. Almost instantly, people in Flint started to complain that the water smelled, the water was discolored, the water was making people sick. Over the course of about 18 months, the emergency managers and state officials and some city officials 
denied and and disparaged essentially the claims that there was anything wrong before finally this burst into public view that there was a big lead poisoning problem in particular among the children of the city. There was a very heroic pediatrician in the city who kind of rang the alarm about that. I'm working with a number of lawyers to represent residents of the city of Flint who used this corrosive water during the 18-month period when Flint River water was being used. Eventually, they changed back once it was impossible to ignore. They sued saying that their constitutional rights were violated by the emergency managers and officials of the Snyder administration and others. A federal judge said their case couldn't even proceed, that even if there were constitutional violations, they couldn't even go forward. A friend of mine who was litigating that case called me up and said, what do you think about this? And will you help help us get this reversed? And I looked at it, I thought it was just outrageous and totally inconsistent with the law. So I took on an appeal of that case to the Federal Court of Appeals, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals that covers Michigan, argued that last summer and won. And the court said that the residents of the city of Flint should now get their day in court. So it's still a long road to accountability here, but at least we're one step closer to holding accountable the people who made these decisions that really had such a harmful effect on the people of Flint. And it's really, you know, it's children, it's everybody in Flint. And so that's that's such a, a significant thing. One hot topic lately that's back in the public discourse is the idea of gun rights. Following Sandy Hook, Connecticut as a state legislature acted pretty quickly and they enacted an assault weapons ban. The NRA, among other groups, challenged the ban in court. And since it entered the judicial system, four courts, including the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, have upheld the assault weapons ban, effectively saying that assault weapons aren't protected by the Second Amendment. Can you comment on your approach to gun rights and perhaps any limitations to citizens' access to weaponry? Well, so, you know, now we're getting into questions about how I would decide particular cases, which I'm, it, it would be inappropriate for me to answer. I, you know, obviously, as a lower court judge, and, you know, I would be a judge on the highest court of the state of Michigan, but still obviously below the Supreme Court of the United States, I would be bound by the decisions of the Supreme Court, including the Heller decision of the Supreme Court, you know, which obviously was a controversial decision, a five to four decision that said that the Second Amendment creates an individual right to bear arms. And in a later case, the McDonald case, the court said that also applies to the states. What exactly that individual right means, as your question indicates, has been the subject of a lot of litigation in the lower courts. You know, I, I think the one thing that's clear from Heller and McDonald themselves, and that all the litigation in the lower courts shows is the fact that it's an individual right to bear arms does not mean it's an unlimited right. It does not mean regulations are inherently unconstitutional. What regulations are constitutional, I think that gets into an area where I would have to you know, read the briefs and, and, and read the arguments and try to kind of line them up with what the Supreme Court has said. But obviously, this is, I mean, you know, you, you want to talk about issues that that come before the state courts and the state Supreme Court. I mean, this could definitely be one of them. In fact, the Michigan Supreme Court right now has a case in front of it about whether schools, public schools, have the power under state law to exclude guns from their premises. Those issues are exactly the kinds of issues that, that this court will decide. 
So another big issue in the courts recently has been gerrymandering. Just a few weeks ago, we saw the Pennsylvania Supreme Court strike down one of the nation's worst gerrymandered congressional maps. And in Michigan, the fair districting group Voters Not Politicians seems likely to get an initiative to create an independent redistricting commission on the 2018 ballot. What do you think of this effort? I actually, you know, have spent a lot of my career doing voting rights uh, work, um, including work uh, about gerrymandering. I, I spent some time working with the voters, not politicians, folks who are pushing that initiative forward in Michigan, helping them with, with various issues kind of early in the process. Although I'm not formally a part of their organization, I, I did consult with them on, on a bunch of issues. So this has been something that's been a big part of the work I've done. I, I joined a brief, an amicus brief in the Supreme Court this year on behalf of voting scholars in the the Supreme Court case in the U.S., the Gill case that's about um, gerrymandering. So it's, it's something that matters a lot to me. And the, and the right to vote matters a lot to me as well. I mean, I've been from, I think the first case I ever argued in court actually was a voting rights case. And I've consistently gone to court to fight against restrictions on the right to vote. Obviously, I can't comment on what I would do in any challenge to Michigan's districting or any challenge to anything about the anti-gerrymandering proposition that's on the ballot, except to say that obviously this is a, an important issue that's going to come in one form or another before courts like the Michigan Supreme Court. You know, if voters, not politicians, passes the Michigan Supreme Court is going to have a pretty strong role in saying what it means. Challenges to gerrymandering, as you said, in Pennsylvania and in other states have been, you know, very often very significantly in the in the state courts rather than the federal courts. So it's a really important issue for this election. People can look at my record and my appreciation of and my work on behalf of the right to vote and the right to vote an effective ballot. Awesome. So thinking about folks who are listening who might want to learn more about you, get involved with your race, how can people find you and get involved? I have a website you can go to, www.bagginstassforjustice.com. I hope when people see this podcast, my name will be there. So it's just my name for justice.com. Please, you can go there. there there's, a, there's a link to volunteer and stuff. You can find out more about me. Uh, I, I have a Facebook page, like my Facebook page, Samuel Bagginstas for Justice. You can find out more about me there. On Twitter, it's at Bagginstas for number four MI. So Bagginstas for MI, you can, you can find stuff there. I will say, historically, in the state of Michigan, when there's a competitive uh, Supreme Court election, there is a lot of outside corporate money that gets poured into these to these races. And I'm going to do what I can to to try and raise the money that I can to to run a competitive race. There are weird restrictions on fundraising for for judicial candidates. Like I can't ask anybody for money, but my campaign can. I know, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to outspend the interests on on the other side. What, what's going to matter for this race is excitement of the people is really getting people to understand the importance of courts, the importance of this race in this court at this time, the importance of the Michigan Supreme Court. And I'll tell you, as I've been going through the state of Michigan, meeting with people, um, you know, talking to groups of people of various kinds, I think people get it. You know, I think people have seen what what the importance of courts is. The courts aren't a substitute, as we talked about before. Courts aren't a substitute for all the other political organizing people need to do. And I think sometimes lawyers have fallen into the trap of thinking they are, but 
courts are really important for protecting our fundamental rights when other branches of the government are closed off to people. I think people get that and they've just, they've got to focus on this race. And so that's the thing I'm going to be doing, trying to go around the state to get people excited about this race. Great. Well, thanks again for coming on, Sam. You're the first judicial candidate we've spoken to on the podcast. And I think, as you mentioned, judicial positions are really underserved in mainstream media. So I'm really glad to see you running and I appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It, it is often hard to, to get the word out about races like this because they're at the bottom of the ballot and everybody's focusing on the Senate and the governor and, and, and stuff like that. But this stuff really, really matters. And so I, I really appreciate your taking the time to talk to me about it. Yeah, absolutely. And to our listeners, if you want to hear more conversations with judicial candidates, congressional candidates, and gubernatorial candidates, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.